Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So Junipero Serra, who's the subject of our talk, uh, like most complex historical figures, he has been interpreted in a variety of ways in the couple of centuries since his death. And two of the most significant elements in that interpretation have been history and cultural location. So historically, Serra was first interpreted by Francisco Pelu, as we've heard, uh, through the perspective of the 18th century Bourbon reforms in the New World. That was a set of reforms articulated by the Spanish crown, which aimed at increasing the power of the crown in the colonies and decreasing the power of competing institutions, most especially uh, the church. In the later 19th century, California, after it became part of the United States, was inhabited by a group of people, often from New England, self-consciously Yankee Protestants, and um, they had a different take on Sarah and the, uh, and, and the missions. They argued that while Sarah may have been a nice person, a Spanish Catholicism retarded the economic growth of California, which, waited, which awaited, of course, the Americans to, re, to, to gain its full potential. And so Sarah was regarded as a nice guy in the service of a bad system. Uh, those who later constructed uh, pictures of Sarah under the influence of a movement in California in the later 19th and early 20th centuries, the so-called Spanish Revival Movement. That's why if you go to California, gas stations look like missions. Um, they have a different idea of Sarah. The Spanish Revival Movement articulated the notion of heroic, civilizing missionaries uh, serving benighted native peoples. And finally, um, Sarah's image is, is dramatically altered by the emergence of the new social history starting in the 1960s, and even more from the foregrounding of indigenous voices um, that, that happened in subsequent decades, sort of symbolized by the, by the Indian occupation of, of Alcatraz. So history has a big part in how Sarah has been interpreted. Now, from the point of view of cultural location, Sarah always looked different if you were somebody from Mallorca. And there's a, a church in Mallorca. This is the building where Sarah spent more time uh, in the Franciscan residence here than anywhere else in his entire life. And that is the Church of San Francisco in Palma. And the statue in front of that church is a statue of Junipero Serra. Sarah looked different, though, if you were an Anglo booster of California under the influence of the Spanish revival movement. That's when a lot of the statues of Sarah that adorn California uh, were put up, and a lot of the streets and freeways, even, in California that bear his name uh, were, were, were named. And Sarah always looked different if you were a member of one of California's indigenous uh, communities as well. So Sarah has been interpreted many different ways during the, uh, in the two and a half centuries since his death. In this presentation, we will focus on a central aspect of Sarah's life, the manner in which he approached the native peoples of California. His approach was conditioned by the manner in which he interpreted them, and that interpretation was greatly determined by his own history and cultural location. 
Much of our presentation today is drawn from Sarah's own writings. These writings are part of the Spanish colonial archive. As historian Ned Blackhawk has recently remarked, colonial archives are to be regarded with, quote, moderate to deep suspicion, end quote, when they deal with indigenous cultures. In Sarah's case, these very suspicions can help us understand what he was and was not able to accomplish. Now, a good introduction into the manner in which Sarah approached the native peoples is offered by a series of events that occurred in December 1776. During that month, in a drenching downpour, a group of Chumash people, one of California's most numerous native coastal groups, suddenly confronted a small party in the foothills along the Santa Barbara Channel. The group of Spaniards slugging through the mud that day had little doubt that they had just walked into a well-designed ambush. Now this is Ventura Highway 101, obviously not there when, when the Spaniards were there, but we wanted to give you an idea of the physical conditions, and probably even worse, that these poor folks had to endure. And so they had to leave the beach where they were walking and they had to move up to the foothills. And as they were slogging through the mud that day, the group, which consisted of a small number of Spanish soldiers and two Spanish priests, Junipero Serra and Fermín uh, Francisco de la Suel. Now, Serra himself was returning from San Diego, where he had supervised the beginning of the reconstruction of the mission there after it had been destroyed the previous year by a large group of Kumai people. Serra had long been anxious to evangelize the Chumash, who lived in the Santa Barbara area, but recent signs had not been promising. La Suen, his companion, had witnessed an intense skirmish between the Chumash and Spanish soldiers a year earlier, and he had drawn this lesson from that skirmish. These Channel Indians know that they are strong, and they act on the principle that whoever harms them will have to pay a price. And so any journey through Chumash territory was not to be taken lightly. A severe storm made matters worse, as Sarah recounted. Strong winds, heavy rains, much mud, and rough high seas did not allow us to set foot on the beach, which would have made for a shorter and easier walk. So as I said, this party was, was, was forced to seek refuge along the, the foothills. The soldiers and missionaries were well aware that this was the perfect occasion for an ambush. And soon enough, the Chumash soon appeared. Nasera did not record his or his companion's immediate reaction to their presence, but what happened next confounded his expectations and made a lasting impression on him. Instead of attacking, the Indians began to assist the beleaguered Spanish party. Sarah found himself the special object of native attention, as they did everything they could to help him out. As he wrote a few months later, Since I could not travel on foot or on horseback, with one person on each side, they took hold of my arms and carried me over the muddy hills. I was not able to repay them for their efforts and their act of compassion, nor do I think I will ever be able to repay them as I would hope to do. This particular picture was drawn by a Jesuit missionary in Paraguay, Florian Pauque, but it shows kind of the, the missionaries being transported in the way that Sarah describes himself as being helped by the Chumash in Santa Barbara. And groups of Chumash, of native peoples, uh, remained with the traveling party for the next few days, and Sarah did everything he could to try to interact with them. This is how he remembered it. 
When I was able to sing, a large number of them would happily join in and accompany me. When we stopped, I blessed those who had helped me, and then a second group came over and asked me to bless them as well. A number of them accompanied us for many days. And Sarah concluded this account by recording the intense feeling that he had for these people. And for me, this served to deepen the compassion I have felt for them for quite some time. So for Hnipero Sarah, this encounter in December of 1776 symbolized what he hoped to achieve in Alta California. The interaction between Chumash and Spanish, with one group seeing the other group in need and spontaneously coming to their assistance, was the foundation for the kind of evangelization that he hoped to accomplish along the Pacific Slope. He hoped that this sort of cooperation would allow further contact and further dialogue, and that California's native peoples would gradually come to accept the truth of Christianity. As St. Francis of Assisi, the founder of his religious order, had respectfully preached to Sultan Melek el Kamel in Egypt in the 13th century, so Sarah believed that he could respectfully spread the Christian gospel among the indigenous peoples with whom he had freely chosen to spend the rest of his life. But Sarah realized that unlike St. Francis, he was not traveling alone. He was embedded in an elaborate, complicated, and often violent colonial project that stretched back almost 300 years. Sarah's own interpretation of himself was closely related to his reading of that colonial history. He firmly believed, and he was not alone, uh, he firmly believed that the two-century-long history of Spanish expansion into northern New Spain uh, pointed to an inescapable conclusion. And he further believed that his own experience and his fellow missionaries' experience with Jose Escandon, a latter-day conquistador, in the Sierra Gorda and in the Nuevo Santander, an area right south of Texas, pointed in the same direction. He believed that the most likely outcome of Spanish expansion into these regions, um, areas controlled by indigenous peoples in northern New Spain, would be the exploitation of these people by ranchers and soldiers, who were often, who were often the same people. He further believed that the only realistic alternative to this kind of exploitative domination was a more benevolent and paternal and protective domination of these people by missionaries. Sarah's interpretation of that history did much to set his cultural location and determine the posture he presented to the native peoples he encountered. In that context, we will focus on the related themes of conversion and punishment. We also ask what the documentary record tells us about the ways in which the native peoples responded to Sarah's approaches. Though it might seem obvious to all of us here, it is important to underscore that Sarah's primary and at times almost exclusive frame of reference was religious. Sarah's personal views were outlined in a religious venue in a series of sermons he delivered in Palma, the capital of Mallorca, in 1744 to a convent of poor Clares, the cloistered sisters. Sarah's, it was a, a series of Lenten sermons, and his overarching theme in these sermons was a verse from one of the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Sarah argued that conversion was 
a, an affective rather than an intellectual process, and that more often than not, it was more gradual than sudden. Picking up on the words of the psalm, Sarah suggested that God was kind of like a culinary delight. If you've ever tasted that particular dish, you don't know what you're missing. But once you taste it, you find that you have an increasing appetite for it. And you want it more and more. This is how we phrased it. Anyone who has tasted the sweetness of the Lord just once regards as empty all of this life's pleasures and delights, if they even deserve to be called these. Those who do not know anything about this sweetness and do not taste it do not have any appetite for it. But someone who has tried it just once discovers that he has an increasing appetite for it, for he finds it very soothing. As the Lord himself says, those who eat of me will hunger for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. So this notion of gradual, gradual conversion informed Sarah's conception of what the initial days of a mission ought to look like before any baptisms had taken place. He wanted the place to be open, where people could come and go and have informal contact with the missionaries. So for instance, in 1770, less than a week after the initial site for the Presidio and the mission in Monterey had been determined by Gaspar de Portola, the governor, uh, Sarah was unsatisfied with the location. He was troubled by the fact that it was simply too far from the native villages of the area. He had learned from Juan Crespi, his fellow missionary, that the Carmel River, where the land party had initially camped, was closer to these indigenous villages. And so Sarah quickly concluded that his mission ought to be located there. There is no Indian village at all in the vicinity of this port. Because of this, if we see that the Indians are determined to accept our holy faith, we need to recognize the special difficulty they will have in taking up residence here. It might be necessary to leave the Presidio here and with a few soldiers of the escort, move the mission close to the Carmel River, two short leagues to the south. It is a truly splendid location, capable of producing abundant crops because of the plentiful and excellent land and water. So Sarah's initial reason for questioning Monterey as a place for the mission was not primarily the infertility of the land or the proximity of the soldiers, which are the reasons that are basically uh, adduced to explain his desire to move the mission. Rather, the basic reason was that Monterey was too far away from the existing native villages. Sarah wanted the mission to be a place that close to existing settlements so that people could easily visit the mission where they could taste and see what Sarah confidently believed was the sweetness of the gospel. His immediate and overriding concern was to get closer to the native peoples so he could begin to establish a relationship with them. Less than a month after his arrival at Monterey, he expressed frustration in a note to a nun in Spain that the inevitable necessities of you know, getting himself and his fellow Franciscans set up in the area was keeping him from establishing those kinds of relationships. This is what he wrote. Here I am, having just arrived with so much to do, building a small house of wooden poles in which to live. It will also serve as a place to store food or to store the items for the church, the house, and the supplies that were brought on the ship. 
It will also serve as a church where we can say Mass. All of these inconveniences are inevitable in the beginning stages. I have barely been able to find time to meet the Gentiles who live at some distance from here, even though they have come to see us a number of times. They very humbly and generously have given us some of their food. So the same conception and the same insistence was responsible for some of Sarah's difficulties, and there were many difficulties, with military commander Pedro Fajes, especially concerning the early days of Mission San Gabriel, which is near the Los Angeles area. Less than two months after the founding of that mission, Fajes decreed a limit to the number of indigenous people who could come into the mission at any one time. Fahez was probably responding to the skittishness of the soldiers there about the effects of having so many native people wandering around the primitive complex. But this is exactly what Sarah wanted. Mission San Gabriel was located in a very populated area, and none of the soldiers there at the mission, and they were either soldiers who had been born or served in Baja, California, or recently arrived volunteers from the Catalonian region in, in Spain, none of them had ever been posted to a garrison where they were so thoroughly surrounded by so many non-Christian native peoples, and they didn't know what to expect. Thus, from their perspective, restricting access to the mission was perhaps a reasonable precaution. But for Sarah, that restriction stuck, struck at the very heart of what he thought a mission ought to be. A similar tension emerged in 1775, a few years later, in Monterey. It was with Fernando de Rivera y Moncada who succeeded Fajes as military commander of Monterey. In July of 1775, a boat arrives, and Rivera y Moncada writes a letter asking Sarah to have some Indians come down and unload the boat for him. Sarah balked. His refusal was based on his missionary strategy. This is what he told the commander. I am being presented with a very delicate situation. The work the Indians do here is their own work. Even though they are never asked to work without receiving food and clothing in return, they are so wary that at times from a group of 50, we are lucky to get even a dozen who are willing to work. We find ourselves without firewood to cook the pozole for them, even though it is, it is easy to find firewood because there is so much of it around. We are tolerating this and are carefully trying to encourage them so that little by little they will learn. Little by little, gradual conversion. Sarah claimed that he was very reluctant to put additional burdens on the people at the missions when he was still in the process of trying to instill in them, by example, the habits of work that European-style agriculture would require. His preferred approach was to attempt to attract the native peoples into the rhythm of mission life in a gradual fashion, and he felt that he was the best judge of what that graduality ought to, ought to be like. Now, we can see what Sarah believed was the results of these efforts in a letter that he wrote describing the harvest, 1775, a few months after this uh, um, issue with uh, Fernando de Rivera y Moncada. Sarah reported that just as the harvesting at, uh, of, of the wheat at the mission was beginning, a large number of sardines appeared offshore. Just kind of keep that in mind. It was probably very fragrant. <clears throat> the harvesting of wheat began on July 18th. It had to be prolonged until August 11th, 
because as soon as the harvesting began, so many sardines appeared on the beach near the mission that we found it necessary to harvest until noon and then gather sardines in the afternoon. This arrangement lasted for 20 consecutive days. After two weeks of meatless meals, the following Sunday, the Indians took a break from eating sardines and went out as a group to look for the nests that fish-eating birds built between the rocks. They pulled out large numbers of birds, which were the size of a large hen. They spent that Sunday camped out on the beach of Carmel, divided up into countless little groups, each with its own fire upon which they roasted the birds and then they ate. I went with two other padres to see the gathering. It was a period of contentment, a beautiful setting. So the picture that Sarah is painting here, a portrayal of native peoples gradually learning the techniques of European agriculture, of a mission work schedule roughly evenly divided between imported and traditional occupations, of Europeans appreciating the skill of native California fishermen, and of the priests appreciatively watching a Rumson Ohlone community gathering. This picture may perhaps have been an idealized one. However, it contained a strong vision of the kind of Christian community that Sarah thought he was in the process of creating in Alta California. In describing this scene, Sarah used the, the phrase, the phrase that Rosemary translated as a beautiful setting, Beo Teatro. Uh, there's probably, this phrase is probably an allusion to the well-known 1698 work by Fray Augustine Vetancourt, Teatro Mexicano. Serra was thus consciously, we believe, placing his own efforts in Alta California in the Franciscan tradition, the long Franciscan tradition of missionary accomplishments in the New World. But in Serra's mind, invitation was always balanced with discipline and coercion. Let's return to those 1744 sermons. The third sermon was entitled, The Gentleness of the Lord, even in the sufferings he sends us. And in this sermon, Sarah stated that the afflictions that God sends people are those of a loving father. But you will say, how can the tender love of a father for his child be reconciled with punishing and afflicting him? Actually, a harmony between love and strictness is what characterizes a true father. It is precisely because the father loves him that he teaches him to obey. When he misbehaves, the father scolds and punishes him so that the son can correct his mistakes. In this way, even though it might seem at first glance that the son is his father's slave, it becomes clear that he is his father's deeply beloved son. The divine father behaves in a similar way with men who are his own sons. And in the sermon, Sarah also used another analogy, that of a doctor and a patient to drive home the same point. So tell me, which doctor loves his patients? The one who treats them with bitter liquids and bleeding, or the one who indulges his patients' whims and does not forbid anything that the patient's corrupted taste might long for? Certainly you will answer, all right, test time. First one or second one? Of course, the first one. So when it came to baptized Indians, Sarah took his self-appointed role as stern father and reliable doctor very seriously. Now, this role of father was one that actually had deep roots in the Iberian colonization worldview. As the scholar Anthony Pagden has shown, by the middle of the 17th century, 
Spanish thinkers were referring to Native Americans, not with the Aristotelian concept of natural slavery, which Las Casas had rebelled against, but with the more relativistic concept of natural infancy. And so by Serra's time, Spanish discourse had somewhat humanized and at the same time somewhat infantilized the native peoples of the New World. Serra's use of the parent-child analogy in this third sermon neatly fit into this developing conception. And so Serra could be a stern father, especially in the area where the folkways of the native peoples and the dictates of religion especially coincided, the area of sexuality. In January of 1775, he wrote Rivera y Moncada. During today's siesta, at about two o'clock in the afternoon, Simon Carpio, the Indian muleteer, was caught fornicating at the river with a Christian woman from this mission. I beg Vuestra Merced to arrest him, and we will punish him here, so it will serve as an example. So even though Rivera y Moncada in his diary wrote that he thought the whole thing was just related to disputes among the Baja California Indians, because Carpio was from Baja California, he agreed that Carpio ought to be given 25 lashes. And Serra recommended the same punishment for baptized Indians who left the mission, such as four baptized Indians whom a party of mission Indians, led by a native person from Baja California, captured in July of that same year, 1775. Last Friday, I sent 11 adults to the mountains in search of my lost sheep. Last night, they brought back to me nine neophytes from this mission. I am sending four of them to you for punishment, a period of time in exile, and two or three rounds of whipping. This should be a good lesson for them as well as for the others, and it will be of spiritual benefit for everyone, which is the goal of our efforts. If you do not have shackles on hand, if you would let us know, they can be sent from here. I believe their punishment should last one month. So flogging was the punishment of choice for baptized Indians who violated the boundaries that the missionaries and Sarah imposed upon them, even though most people who submitted to baptism were probably unaware at that time that such boundaries were so sacrosanct. The flogging was the punishment of choice because it was so prevalent. It was the standard punishment in the Spanish military and many other militaries of the world. And it was the standard punishment in areas of the frontier, like California, that were controlled by the military. This was true even though in more settled areas of New Spain, in Mexico City by the, 18, by the 1700s, uh, political and religious opinions about the appropriateness of flogging were in flux. A few years after the rebellion at San Diego, that I talked about earlier, Sarah recounted to La Suen a conversation he had had with the governor, the new governor, Felipe de Neve, about the governor's refusal to send more troops to, to the new, newly built mission San Diego. Neve's response was important for it clearly demonstrates that flogging Indians was not something that missionaries invented, nor was it something that missionaries forced upon unwilling colonial officials. Rather, on the frontier, there was widespread agreement among all levels of the colonial administration that this was appropriate. So Neve tells Sarah that he cannot spare any additional soldiers to send to San Diego, so flogging the Indians is going to have to take place. I told Neve that everyone is aware of the temperament of those Indians, to which he responded, well, flog them. 
I responded, well, even for that, we need troops in order to carry it out without fear. Sir, give the padres some assistance, to which he responded. They can do without it. There's no reason for it, things being as they are. Sarah also argued with Governor Neve that priests needed the authority to order the flogging of any Indian, even an Indian official, an Indian alcalde, within the mission community. Sarah insisted that the native peoples would eventually understand that priests were like loving parents, trying to help their children. And Sarah was probably unaware that the child-rearing practices of the native California, um, uh, the California Indians generally did not involve this kind of corporal punishment. In fact, when the missionaries did comment on the way in which native Californians, California Indians, raised their children, they usually criticized them for being too lenient, for showing what one missionary called an extravagant love for their children, and for refusing to, quote, chastise them. And so it's difficult to see how indigenous Californians could have interpreted flogging in the way that Sarah and the missionaries intended it. Sarah also justified flogging by appealing to some stories that were current in the religious narratives of the Americas. He cited a tradition relating to Hernán Cortés that originated in Franciscan circles. According to this story that was popular in New Spain, in Texcoco, an Indian was flogged because he had missed mass. This caused a tremendous amount of anger in the local indigenous community. So Cortés concocted this idea, concocted this idea and he arranged with the priest so that he, Cortes, would be late for mass the next time. And he would allow himself to be whipped for the offense. So the purpose of this was so that the Indians would be taught that religious edicts were for everybody. Everyone had to obey them, not just the Indians, but also the non-Indians, and that they were not being singled out for punishment. So the existence of this story indicates that at least some missionaries realized that the widespread flogging of native peoples was controversial and could perhaps require more justification from as many sources as possible. Flogging also bore a superficial resemblance to the Christian practice of self-flagellation, a practice to which Sarah subscribed during his entire life as a member of the Franciscan order. For those religious who did practice self-flagellation, flogging was kind of similar to what they did themselves. But the whips that were used for flogging were considerably more substantial and painful than the instruments the religious used to discipline themselves. And in addition, a good religious was supposed to flog himself in private and at the same time comport himself more or less normally in public so that no one could tell that he was whipping himself. On the other hand, the effects of flogging were meant to be public, and they were meant to be publicly painful. And so there's a disconnect between flogging and, and self-flagellation. And this disconnect leads us to our final question. What do the written sources, the colonial archive, what do they tell us about the way in which the native peoples responded to Sarah and the missionaries' overtures? Now, there's no simple answer to this question. For each indigenous nation responded to the Spanish from within their perspective of their own social and cultural and political and religious traditions. But a good way to approach the question, we believe, would be to listen to how Sarah described two separate incidents. The first one occurred on June the 10th, 1769, as he was heading from Baja California on his way to San Diego. 
Sarah and the group of which she was a member, which was the second land party going overland from Loreto and Baja California to San Diego, uh, were approached by a member of the Pai Pai people through whose territory they were passing. And this is how Sarah reported the encounter in his diary. During the morning, while preparations were underway for our departure, one of the Gentiles who allowed themselves to be seen from a small hill nearby approached us with a club in one hand and a rattle in the other. After welcoming him with much attention, we tried to get him to eat without being afraid. It's a long story how we tried everything imaginable to get him to eat. He finally explained his behavior, saying that he was the dancer of that region and that he could not eat anything until he had performed a ceremonial dance around the food. He said that if, he, if we wanted to give him something, we should put it on the ground and allow him to do his dance. Then he would eat. We gave him permission and freedom to proceed. He then began to dance and sing around the offerings. While this was going on, a soldier would come with a piece of tortilla, sugar, or meat, and try to put it in the Indian's mouth, but he always resisted, making signs that they should put the food on the pile so he could dance around it. The pile of food seemed small to the Indian, so after asking us for permission, he danced around all of our provisions and all of our animals. It seemed he was preparing himself to eat everything we had brought. After that, he was very happy and said he was no longer afraid. He ate and began to answer very frankly the questions from our interpreters, but all was lost. When we were ready to leave this place, someone from our group said something to him which he misunderstood, and he ran off to the hill as if he were a deer, leaving everything we had given him behind except for the club and the rattle that he had brought. So Sarah tells this story kind of whimsically, you know, what does this guy want to eat everything? You know, he's dancing and dancing wider and wider. But there's more going on than he, he realized at the time. Two months earlier, the first land leg of the expedition was in the same territory. And this leg of the expedition had captured an old man uh, who was apparently some kind of local leader. Jose Cañizares, who was on that first leg of the expedition, described this old man as, quote, arrogant. Juan Crespi, a fellow missionary whom Sarah had sent on this expedition, uh, stated that he did not know, quote, how this old man might be distinguished from the ugliest demon ever depicted. For a single glance at his face, with its bands of white, yellow, and red paint, was enough to horrify one. Now, the Baja California Indians who were accompanying the expedition were from Southern Baja California, and they did not understand the man. And so communication really proved very, very impossible. So Rivera y Moncada, who was the, the head of this expedition, sent this man away with some beads and some ribbon, and the Spanish thought that he and those with him left well pleased, as Crespi said. Now, such sketchy descriptions make it difficult to ascertain you know, what really happened here. But it seems reasonably clear that the Spanish had captured and probably insulted one of the group's leading figures. And it was very doubtful that he left well pleased. Now, there's no reason to assume that the same man that the second leg of the expedition encountered two months later was the same person. But it seems that whoever he was, the object of his dancing is pretty clear. Perhaps it was to purify the land that had been contaminated by the second group of intruders. Perhaps it was to engage in a ritual that would protect the people from them, his, his own people from them. 
or perhaps it was an attempt to inflict some kind of damage upon this group. Whatever the man was doing, he was probably hardly dancing for food. But they did give, give him the nickname El Bailon. The dancer. The dancer. Now the second episode occurs in 1744. Sarah is on his way back from Mexico City, which he had visited in 1773 to get the viceroy to fire the military commander to fire Fajes, and he was successful in that. So as he's on his way back overland, he sails from, from Tepic, outside of Guadalajara, up to San Diego, and then from San Diego, he goes overland to Carmel. On his way, he has a series of conversations with an Indian boy he had baptized a couple of years earlier at Carmel, and he had named Juan Evangelista, John the Evangelist. Uh, Juan Evangelista had actually accompanied Sarah all the way to Mexico City. He had met the Viceroy and everything like that, and back. So Sarah summarizes some of the conversations that he's having with Juan as they're getting closer and closer back to Carmel. As I was getting closer to these lands with Juan Evangelista, I was considering how he might be able to explain to his relatives a portion of how very much he had seen. I wanted to give him some guidance in doing this, so I asked him if he and his people, after seeing the padres and the soldiers, imagined that there might be lands totally inhabited by these types of people who wore clothing, were Christians, etc. He said no, that the elders said they had come from below the earth, and as he explained it, they were the souls of their ancestors, the old Gentiles, who had reappeared in that guise. But he now saw that it was all a lie, and he would tell that to his people. According to the Indians' explanation, there was nothing these poor people knew better than that demons do exist, that they are bad, and that they are their enemies, which is what a Christian should know. The Indians called their demons Mur. They are now happy to find out that the demon's home is in hell and that God is punishing them. With God's help, I will carefully gather information about the wicked behavior the demons engaged in with the Indians and other things. I should point out that the aforementioned stories are just from this area around Monterey. I have heard other versions from other missions as well as from here. I hope these stories do not remain untold. So this exchange between Sarah and, and Juan Evangelista, his, his the boy servant, points to a deeper dynamic that was involved in the encounter between Spanish missionaries and the native peoples of California. The missionaries are always on the lookout for aspects of the local culture that they think might serve as a bridge for the introduction of Christianity. And so Sarah thought that the Rumsinaloni concept of moor, or darkness, might be useful in explaining the notion of the devil. But on the other hand, their ignorance of the local language, especially at the beginning of the encounters, make that difficult. And so they had to resort sometimes to using Spanish words to express the key concepts of their religious views. So for instance, in the Monterey area, the missionaries tried to adapt the Catechismo Breve which was put together in 1644 on the northern Mexican by, uh, frontier by Jesuit Bartolome Castaño, they tried to adapt that to the local situation. And by 1790, some of the words had been put into the local Rumsen Ohlone language. And so, for instance, the 1790 version of the catechism shows that the word sire, which means kind of intestines or, or, or liver, basically the insides of a person, 
was, was being used to express the Christian concept of soul. Now that decision and other decisions like it were not made by the missionaries who didn't know the language yet, but they were made by the local people in consultation with local translators, who most likely were other natives, people uh, from Baja California or Alta California. But when a local word is, is used to express a Christian concept, that a Christian concept that was new to people, that local word does not shed you know, its older and more traditional connotations. Now, we don't know exactly what those connotations were, but we can be reasonably sure that the connotations of sire, intestines or liver, were significantly different from the connotations surrounding the immaterial and immortal soul that was a staple of medieval Christianity. At other points in the 1790 Catechism, the priests would simply retain a Spanish word if they thought it expressed something too different from indigenous concepts or if the local community was unable to come up with an agreed upon equivalent. So for example, they used the Spanish word Dios for God, but the simple use of the Spanish term did not significantly affect the dynamics of translation. Thus the catechism answer to the question, where is God, was, you all should know this, in heaven, on the earth, and in all things. But this answer came out in Rumson as sky, land, all things. But sky and land already had a rich context in the stories and tales of the group. So this Dios person, whoever else he or she may have been, would have to have been the kind of entity who fit into the ideas that were current in the indigenous community of what happened in the sky and into their experiences of their land and their ground. Historian Lisbeth Haas's recent study of Pablo Toc demonstrates that this dynamic was at work among Mission Indians in Southern California. A Jesuit working among the Hurons in the 17th century once lamented that because of the irreducibly relational nature of indigenous words, quote, we find it impossible to get them to say properly in their language in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost." End quote. Indeed, it was not only indigenous vocabulary that was irreducibly relational. Much of the indigenous view of the world rested upon a profound belief in the close relationships that existed between the human beings and the material world, both in life and in death. Now, last summer, Bob and I had the privilege to prepare a video for the Academy of American Franciscan History, a video on Sarah. Got to write the script and got to be in it too. Uh, and we were really privileged to be able to interview an indigenous woman, a descendant of the Mission Indians, who expressed these types of relationships that I just described. She expressed them very clearly. We are actually part of the missions as well. So as indigenous people, we- I'm gonna start it again. We are not just- Okay, Carla, sorry about that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, here we go. This is Carla Munoz, and she was interviewed at Mission San Francisco, the SEs. So that's our relationship with the missions. As far as indigenous people go, we believe that when we uh, pass on to the next world, we become in one of the soil. 
from there comes the trees, the mud, all that that goes into the adobe bricks, the logs in there. So we are actually part of the missions as well. So as indigenous people, we believe that we are not just working in them, but we are actually inside the walls. We're actually there. So it's a living legacy for us. It's powerful. Now, the hidden difficulties with language and worldviews that we talked about a minute ago pointed to a larger issue. Native peoples concealed much more than they revealed to the newcomers. Perceptive missionaries in the Americas had long realized this. Juan Guadalupe Soriano, a Franciscan who followed Sarah in the Sierra Gorda and who composed the first written grammar of the Pame language and thus knew more about this particular culture than most Spaniards, he once said this about the Pame people, the more one deals with them, the less one knows about them. Our suspicion is that for all of his intelligence and sophistication, Junipero Serra never quite came to that insight. So these two aspects in conclusion, these two aspects of Junipero Serra's approach to the native peoples, inviting them to taste the sweetness of his religion and punishing them when they transgressed norms that they had no part in establishing, they clearly present difficulties to a 21st century person. Indeed, this is not a strategy that contemporary Catholic missiology would endorse. But Junipero Serra was not a 21st century person. He was an 18th century person. And the construction of history is always an interplay between the past that is being examined and the present in which that past is being uh, examined. Past and present need to be held in some kind of balance. And a good amount of the negative reaction to Father Sarah's recent canonization, especially in California, has come from an interpretive framework in which the present has crowded out the past in our judgment. The easy use of words from contemporary social analysis, like genocide and human slavery, to describe the actions of Sarah and the Franciscans are, we think, examples of this. This type of vocabulary, however, contributes nothing to historical understanding. Junipero Serra and his fellow missionaries knew that colonialism, Spanish, French, British, Dutch, whatever, colonialism was a messy and cruel business. But they chose not to retreat to caves in the desert, but to engage the actual world in which they lived. Within a self-consciously colonial context, they tried to create an environment in which free invitation and free response would eventually replace all coercion and render that coercion unnecessary. That they did not always succeed should not detract from the recognition of the genuineness and intensity of their efforts, nor of their deep love for the indigenous peoples of the America that animated those efforts. Thank you very much. I want to put in a little, before you clap, uh, a little plug for our book, if you'd like to see it. This is our book, 540 pages. Uh, it's only $34.95. It's a bargain. Uh, we, left, we have some flyers that we'll put out if you're interested in the book. You can take a look at it. You can get it on Amazon, too. Uh, but as Bob likes to say, it's really true. The Pope was our best press agent, honest to God. <laughs> this book came out in March, and uh, it, 
it's been so well received and the Vatican, uh, the Franciscans told us that it's the definitive biography of Sarah. So we're really, really pleased and we are privileged to have worked on it for 10 years. So thank you for your kind attention. It was so lovely to be able to speak to you today and, and I hope that you made connections with what James said. I kept on wanting to say, yeah, James, it's perfect. Uh, and what we, what we said, and you know that Sarah is a controversial uh, person, but he is a human being that I truly admire, warts and all. So now you can clap. <laughs> Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.